The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Good morning, church. It's really good to be together this morning, and it's good to see you. Welcome here, every one of you. And uh, the point of all of this, of course, is to worship our God together. And uh, let's do that. Let's stand and let's sing this. Good morning, church. You can have a seat. Welcome here. I'm so excited to uh, be able to greet you. My name is Rudy. I'm one of the pastors here at White Church Baptist Church, and we're so glad to see you all. Uh, welcome to the people online as well. Uh, if you are new here, we want to say hello. Welcome. Glad you could make it. Uh, and we would love to get to know you. So if you want to get to know us, you can fill out a welcome um, form. There's a lot of forms here today, guys, so prepared. But uh, there's a welcome form, and that form allows us to connect with you. And, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes crowds get unwieldy, and we need to make sure that nobody gets left behind. And so we want to do that with you. And then, you know, we're going to jump right in, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, speaking of people that are new, we have a newcomer's luncheon here today, uh, which you should have registered for by last week. Um, so that'll be in the fireside room after the service at 12.30. If you're new and you go, well, I didn't know about this, that's okay. We're going to have more of those. We're going to have a lot of newcomers luncheons that are going to happen all throughout the year. And if you're new here and you've never been to one of those, you'll be able to sign up for those as well. Today is just for the ones that have registered just because of the amount of food to, that is there. Um, Super, super exciting announcements, two of them. Uh, we have two couples in our midst who have taken a step of engagement. So I'm going to uh, ask them to stand. Daisy and Matt, yes. And we have Adiv and Maria. I saw them come in. Um, they're, they're back there. I think Adiv is still parking the car, uh, so when he comes in, we're going we're gonna to clap one more time. But it's just so exciting. It's so exciting to see these new couples just, um, well, take another step in their relationship and uh, moving forward with something that's super, super incredibly valuable and uh, exciting for their life. So uh, say congratulations to them after the service. Uh, I'm sure they'll be very excited to meet some of you guys and very excited to hear from some of you guys. Um, if you want to meet people, guess what? We have things for that too. Uh, on Wednesday nights for a couple, of, a couple more weeks yet, we have Come to the Table. And Come to the Table is our desire. Okay, hold up. There he is. Adiva Maria. We're very excited for you guys. Very excited for you guys. Uh, come to the table. Um, if you want to get to know people, if you want to figure out what's happening here at the church, there's a lot happening on Wednesday nights. And you will have to register for that again because of food stuff. We want to make sure that everyone gets fed. Um, so you'll have to register by Sunday nights, every Sunday night until come to the table is done. Um, so by tonight, make sure you register 
for Wednesday, and it'll be great. You, don't have, you can register for every week. You can register for one week or two or however many you choose. And there's a lot of stuff going on. There's ECC, English Conversation Circles. There's uh, conversations at the tables with Bible studies. There's uh, all kinds of stuff happening that is on the website. So please go check that out. Now, next week, next weekend is actually re a really big weekend for us as a church because there's something going on that's been kind of in the process of happening for the last two years. Doug has really been putting his heart and soul into this. It's called, uh, we call it the Missions Weekend. We understand that we as a church are incredibly diverse. We have people from, like, you, if you look at the flags outside uh, on, in the foyer, you're going to see that there's people that are represented for all kinds of different nations. And we want to make sure that those nations are represented well. And we want to give that next weekend kind of for that. And so it's going to start on Friday night with youth. We're going to have a, a missions focus that night. It's going to be super good. Um, then uh, Saturday morning, right here uh, in the building, we are going to have a, um, uh, an event, a men's and women's event. They're going to be in different rooms with different people. And it's going to be great. It's going to be so good of just learning more about uh, uh, the guest speakers in, the, in those uh, different events are going to talk about uh, missions. It's going to be so cool. I'd, I'd love to hear more about missions all the time. And I'm glad that we're doing this. And that's not the end yet, because on Saturday afternoon, we have a panel discussion. And that's going to be of people in our church who are going to be sitting at a panel. And you're going to, they're going to share their uh, life story. They're going to share some of what it means to come as an immigrant to Canada. They're going to share about what it means for different cultures to experience the gospel differently even. And you're going to be able to ask questions later, and it's going to be great. It's going to be super good. That's on Saturday afternoon. Then on Sunday morning, we are going to have another flag parade. We did this a while ago with the flags that are out in the foyer. And, well, there's been people that said, hey, my flag's not represented yet. And I would like that to happen. And so we're going to do that on Sunday morning. Uh, we're not going to take down the, the flags that are already up there. But if you felt like, hey, I want to represent my country a little, um, if you have traditional garb, wear it. We'd love to see you in your traditional clothing. I think it'd be so cool for us to represent our countries, considering the fact that, you know, the gospel is going to all nations around the world. I'd love to see that happening right here in this church. Uh, and then on Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, sorry, uh, from 2 to 4, we're going to have the Kairos blanket exercise. And if you don't know what that is, it's basically a... Uh, practical look at uh, Canada's history, specifically how it uh, interacts with the indigenous history of our country. And um, I would love for you all to be there. Now, I want to say this very clearly, there is uh, registration required for all of these things, but it's not as scary as you might think. You can register for one event, uh, one event. You can register for all of it. You can register for a portion of it. But we want to make sure that we have all the right, um, well, supplies and food and everything for the people that are planning on being there. So please, please register by 
It's Tuesday the 18th. And if you have more questions, there's going to be, uh, we have Tim. Uh, where are you, Tim? Right there in the front. Uh, Tim is going to be in the foyer, and he's going to be able to answer all your questions. Well, hopefully some of them anyway. Uh, I don't expect him to answer questions that are not in his uh, field of purview. But he's going to be in the foyer. He's going to be able to answer a lot of your questions about the uh, Missions Fest. It's going to be so good. Um, so that's, that's happening. And um, yeah, I think that's it for me. I want to uh, welcome up Anna Lalden, who's going to share a little bit about Cam Nudemic. So let's give her a hand for Anna. Good morning. <laughs> yeah, so my name is Anna, and I've been attending White Ridge for the past 18 years. Uh, this past summer, I got the privilege of serving God at Camp Nudemic, which is where I grew up attending as a camper. In previous years, I've gotten to serve at camp in the dish pit as a kitchen volunteer or on the housekeeping team, but this year, the door had opened up for me to be a cabin leader, which was super exciting. I have wanted to be a cabin leader since I first attended Camp Nudemic, uh, going into grade four in uh, 2013, and I had none other than Christina Cooper as my first cabin leader. Getting to hang out with a set group of kids, sharing their joy, and showing them the joy that I have in the Lord just seemed like the ultimate job as I got older. I honestly wasn't sure, though, in the months leading up to summer whether or not I would apply, but I felt that I would sort of be giving up on one of the goals that I had if I didn't, or letting down a younger version of myself. And I also knew that one of the reasons that I didn't want to was simply because I knew that it would be uncomfortable at moments. However, I think that one of the things that I've learned, and I'm still learning as I get older, is that God doesn't necessarily call us to live a comfy life. He calls us to live a life like him. It was interesting to see the subtle ways that God was whispering in my ear or tugging at my heart throughout the summer. One of the first things that hit me was the difference in how God reveals himself to us through the different things that he has created. And I have to admit, I am a sucker for a beautifully colored sky. You hit me with an orange sky, you know those pink fluffy clouds or just dozens of stars on a pitch black night, and I am completely awestruck. I just have no words to describe the creator behind it that would ever be good enough. I want you to think of a piece of God's creation that hits you like that. So maybe it's a starry night like mine. Maybe it's the mountains, which just emphasize the grandeur of God's handiwork, or maybe it's something small like the details of a spider's work on its web. Whatever it might be, I just want you to think of something that you see God in, in the world around you. Now I want you to turn to your neighbor, the person beside you, Say hi, turn, you can turn, I can see you. <laughs> Give him a wave, yeah, say hello, good morning. <laughs> Do you know how much more of God you see in that single person than you could ever see in the mountains, the rivers, the fall leaves, the starry nights, etc. The list just goes on and on. You see, God made all of those things around us, and yes, he said that they were good, but they were not made in his image like you and me. So what that means is that you see a more accurate image of the living God in person, in the person that's sitting beside you right now, in that new colleague that you have in, at work, or in that camper that's giving you a difficult time <laughs> than you could ever see staring up at the sky. Our camp director, Nancy, had shared that with us during our staff training week in the first week of July. And you know that when something like that stands out to you, God has something in store. He's about to show you exactly what that means in every camper and every situation with each child that you come across. As this was my first year of cabin leading, I was learning in the first couple of weeks exactly what came with being a cabin leader. 
Being a cabin leader means getting poked by a little finger about half an hour after lights out, or maybe it's 3 a.m., 4 a.m., then 4.30, etc. looking up and seeing two little eyeballs glowing in the dark at you before a kiddo asks you if you can take them to a washroom or go for a walk with them. It looks like being elbow to elbow at a round table for each meal and reminding your girls to not stab each other with forks at the breakfast table or to stick their fingers in the butter before spreading it on their toast. It looks like many small moments that you just can't have predicted in any world, no matter how hard you try, which can be very easy to get overwhelmed by. However, it also looks like getting to experience that super shy camper scoot a little closer to you because they've begun to trust you. It looks like showing a cabin full of girls what this amazing book called the Bible is and showing them how they can find verses on their own using a reference. It then looks like getting to celebrate with them for the first time as they've found a specific verse all on their own with the reference that you've given them. It looks like getting to sit outside on the porch of your cabin and talk with a camper about something that's on their heart. Something that's on their hearts. And it looks like being that voice of encouragement for each of your campers as they take on the day's activities. Being a cabin leader looks like seeing the image of God in each camper that I got to know over the summer, over the course of two months. It also looked like seeing God through the people that I got to work with, though, and getting to understand the sheer power of prayer. There were many nights where the only answer to come up with was standing on the porch in the dark, hand in hand with my co-cabin leader, just praying over each other for strength and wisdom about certain scenarios, being able to encourage each other in the powerful way that only Christians can. There was one night specifically which was particularly difficult for me where I was just awake and just praying to God constantly for a couple hours. And the next morning after our staff meeting, Nancy had come up and sat beside me on the couch and she put her arm over the back the way that moms do around my shoulder and just whispered like, how you doing? I told her about the night before and how I was awake and in constant prayer, just stressed out. She responded and said, what time was it that you were awake from? I told her that I was awake from around 2.30 to 4 a.m. And she looked me directly in the eyes and said, Anna, I woke up and I knew that I had to pray for you. I was up in my house from 2 to 4.30 talking to God about you. A half an hour on either side of when I was awake doing the same thing. Something like that doesn't just happen by coincidence. It's not something that you just shrug off and say, wow, it's crazy that it worked out like that, huh? God's hands were at work in every second of each day and night, whether we fully saw it or not. And the staff at Camp Nudemic, we prayed through it all, thanking God for our joys, giving him what we were struggling with, and did he take care of us in ways that we could never have imagined and maybe didn't even fully see. The last thing that I want to share with you is a story from one of the last couple weeks of camp. I had a cabin full of young girls, and there was one girl who was specifically shy, but she was also a little bit of a troublemaker. At night, she would tap the person on the bottom bunk, and say, I don't know, like, Paula, Susie up there wants to talk to you. And then she would tap Susie on the top bunk and say, Susie, Paula down there, she wants to talk to you. And then after that, she would just get all tucked in and watch as the confusion began as both of these girls tried to figure it out what the other person wanted to say to them. And it was pitch black, and she just was very pleased with herself. The little chaos that she had just created. Throughout the course of that week, she didn't really seem overly interested in God or the devos that we were doing. She would always lean over to me after chapel as we were doing our chapel debrief and ask, Hey, Anna, when is it lunchtime? Every day without fail. And I would say, oh, you know what? It's coming up. We've got like half an hour. Let's just sit here through this next Devo. We just got like a little, little bit more of a debrief to go. Lunch is coming up. And then we would get focused on the right track. And then about five minutes later, it would be, what do you think lunch is? And I'd be like, oh, I don't know. I bet it's going to be good, though. It's probably going to be good. We just got a couple more questions, though, kiddo. Let's just focus. And then we'd get focused right into the Devo again. She'd be paying attention. And then about five minutes later, 
do you think that it's going to be chicken fingers? <laughs> and we'd be like, oh, girl, I hope so. I hope it is. I'm with chicken fingers and french fries? Let's just pray. And it would be every day like that without fail. On, uh, on the Thursday night, so the last night, we were all settled into our beds and we were doing our devotions. And this one, it was a story about Elisha and a Shunammite woman, which in itself was just a roller coaster of a story to read for the first time with my campers. You'll have to read it sometime. Anyways, we were almost done the devotion and, and she raised her hand to ask me a question, which firstly was enough to happily surprise me a bit. I was very happy to see that she was engaged. Um, and she looked at me and she said, did God really make the heavens and the earth? And I looked at her and I said, oh, you bet he did. It ended there and we continued on with our devotional when a couple minutes later she raised her hands again and she says, Anna, did God really make the sun and the moon? And so again I looked her dead in the eye and I said, oh, you bet he did. And so we continued the Devo and once more she decides to raise her hand and she says, Anna, did God actually make all of those trees outside, like all of them? And I was like, oh, you bet he did. And you know what? She looked at me wide-eyed and she was just waiting for me to continue and so I did and I said, all that grass outside that you see? He made that too. She was just shocked. A little fish, he made those too. It was jaw-dropping for her as I continued, and she was only more and more fascinated with what was coming out of my mouth about this creator. She just couldn't believe it. I looked up at the cabin after that, and I said, girls, I think after we brush our teeth, we need to read a little story. That night, I got to, re- I got to go right back to the beginning, and I got to read my campers the creation story answering their questions as we went along together and learned about God the Creator. I got to tell them about how each of them was made in God's image and how they aren't loved by God because they're valuable, but they're valuable because they're loved by God. And some of them were hearing that for the first time. (laughs) They carry his image stamped on them. God worked in so many intricate ways over the course of the summer, and I enjoyed getting to see some of them. Yes, being a cabin leader over the summer was difficult, but it was so rewarding and filling to see God in each of the campers that I got to know, specifically the girls in my cabin. I loved getting to cabin lead some of the White Ridge girls as well, right from my junior minis all the way up to my high school ladies, and to see how God was working in their lives as well. I may not have seen it all, but I know that God was working in not only each camper that attended camp this summer, but each staff member that worked there as well. God was glorified this summer, the family of Christ expanded as commitments were made, and his goodness through all times was celebrated. God is good. Thank you, Anna. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, So great to hear what God is doing in every which way that we can hear it. What an encouragement that is. You know, one of the most mind-boggling and incredible things to me about our God is that while God is perfect and holy and all-powerful, He's the one who created the heaven and the earth. He's the one that created orange sunsets and fluffy pink clouds and the intricacy of the spider webs, and he created each one of us. While all of that is true, at the same time, that same God knows us. He knows you. He knows each one of us, and we can know him. And what an amazing truth that is. 
when we stop and think about it. And it's all over Scripture. We, we see it everywhere in Scripture, including in verses like this from Jeremiah chapter 31. And this was something that, that God said through Jeremiah many, many years before Jesus came to walk on this earth. And here's what it is. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, and I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah had faith in this time to come where Jesus will have been here and will have died for sin and we can know him. He had faith that something was coming. We're living in it. We're living in it. We know the name of Christ and we know that through Christ, through our faith in what he's done for us on the cross, that we can know him, uh, have relationship with God now and forever. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. So this morning as we're singing songs together, we're going to be singing about the holiness of our great God and we're going to be singing about the beauty of knowing him. And I invite you to stand Let's sing this together. One of the great hymns of the faith, uh, Trust and Obey. And I think most of us know this song from when we, were, when we were young. But what's profound about this song to me is that it's in the trusting. When we, when we trust God to obey him, however he's calling us, and there's different ways that he's calling you to step out and serve him, uh, and to take risks relationally and to, to share Christ in different ways and his love. Uh, when we put ourselves aside and we, and we focus on him, uh, that, that requires trust because that's vulnerable. And when we trust him to keep us intact so that we can obey him, that's how we see, that's often how we see him more. That's often how we get to know him more. It's not because we obeyed perfectly and we checked off every box and we did all the right things. It's not that. It's, it's in the process of trusting him and following him that we get to see him carrying us and helping us and moving in our midst. And uh, that's, that's what's beautiful to me about this song. Let's sing this together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory sheds on our way while we do his good will he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and Who will trust and obey? Trust. 
stand obey. Lord God, I thank you that we can know you. I thank you that you are here in our midst. I thank you by your Holy Spirit for every believer you are here in our hearts. I thank you for how you never leave us, nor do you ever forsake us. And we thank you, God, that we have the joy of walking with you every day and the joy of knowing you better every day. And I pray that you'd continue to guide us along that blessed road that we might know you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Actually, I'm going to invite you to stand as I read from God's word. I'm going to read from Matthew 5, verse 17 to 20. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these command, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. Thank you so much, Shirley, for reading the scripture to us this morning. Let me read to you uh, a quote from, from uh, somebody who was uh, talking about how Christians live uh, holy lives. It says this, the standard of practical holy living has been so low among Christians that the least degree of real devotedness of life and walk is looked upon with surprise by a large portion of the church. For the most part, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ are satisfied with a life so conformed to the world and so like it in almost every respect that to a casual observer, no discernible difference is discernible. Now that quote may not surprise some of you, but what might surprise you is that it was written over 150 years ago. <laughs> it was written by a woman named Hannah Whittle-Smith in a book called The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. It seems like things maybe haven't changed a lot. When we think we're in such a dark generation and age, we need to be reminded that the very things that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount are things that his followers wrestle with all throughout the generations. The scripture that Shirley read to us this morning uh, is an introduction really to the rest of chapter 5 of the scripture in Matthew. And um, so far we've been looking at what Jesus has taught. He started by talking about the kind of character that God wants to see in us. Jesus is looking for the Beatitudes to be manifest, 
the poor in spirit, those who mourn their sin, that the meekness that God wants to see. And then he, he moves us out. Last week we talked about how Jesus used this, the metaphors of salt and light to penetrate a world that is without the presence in the, of God in, in this world is rotting, decaying, and dark. And the presence of Christians is to change that. And now today, as we look at the scripture that Shirley read, he proceeds on now to talk about the outworking of this kingdom character and this kingdom witness into what Jesus would define as true righteousness, not merely living by some external code, conduct, rules, behavior, but the kind of righteousness that is, starts deep within because of an internal spiritual change and then works its way out into how we live our lives. And so this morning, as you might see in your bulletin insert, there's a few points I'd like to make, and we're going to start with uh, the word fulfillment. The word fulfillment found in verses 17 and 18. Jesus has come to fulfill the law. Verse 17, he clarifies his relationship to the law, the relationship of Jesus to the law. In verse 18, he says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not even a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Now, the the iota, that was the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, and the dot referred to is the, in the Hebrew language, just that little stroke of a pen, which when a scribe was writing, just meant the difference between one letter or another. It was just a slight turn, a dot in the pen, that described the difference between two letters. So in other words, this, this, this verse cannot be confusing. Jesus is saying every little letter of the law of God is going to be fulfilled. So we have to take that as the absolute that Jesus is laying down. The law of God found in the Old Testament is not obsolete. The moral code that God lays down has not been set aside. It is not irrelevant, is not out of date, it is not expired. Jesus is the one who gave the law of God to Moses. And so we can be sure that he is not going to retract it now or change his mind on it or somehow contradict it or relax it because it's the perfect law of God. And that's why at the end of this whole chapter, when we get to the last verse in chapter 5, verse 48, what does it say? He says, be therefore perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, how do we get there? Well, that's what the rest of chapter 5 is all about. The fact that Jesus himself, in his lifetime, fulfilled the law perfectly that he was a man that lived a perfectly sinless life in perfect conformity to the law of God. The fact that that is true does not mean that we as his followers are exempt from also pursuing that kind of perfect holiness and obeying the law of God. Clearly, Jesus paid the price for our sin but Jesus did not pay the price on the cross for our sins so that we could then just continue to sin without any consequences. Jesus paid the price on the cross for sinners who would then be transformed into saints, 
the word saints means holy ones, these kinds of people that actually do take the law of God seriously and obey it. And so this is what we're grappling with today, that the entire law of God is going to be accomplished within a people who are zealous to live for God and uh, live out what is right and live out what is holy and true. And since we know that we cannot do that in our own righteousness, our own ability, we have to understand the relationship that Jesus has with the law of God. We need to do this in relationship with Christ. Because you and I know, if we're honest with ourselves in our core, we fall, fall far short of living up to the law of God. Let me read to you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in The Cost of Discipleship, and then we're going to unpack what he says just briefly. I think it helps explain something. He says that there is no fulfillment of the law apart from communion with God, and there is no communion with God apart from fulfillment of the law. To forget the first condition was the mistake of the Jews, and to forget the second is the temptation of the disciples. It is Jesus himself who comes between the disciples and the law, not the law which comes between Jesus and the disciples. Now that last sentence is critical. That last sentence is critical to understand. So I've, I've made it a little clearer. What is the believer's relationship with the law? It is the Christian that must let, never let the law of God come between us and Jesus. We must never think that this is the way. We, we must always have Jesus before we think that we could ever fulfill the law of God. You see, so often we put it the other way around. We think that we as Christians have to live up to a certain standard. We have to be a certain kind of people and try to obey the law of God before Jesus is going to accept us somehow. And in order to do that, then what we end up doing is we modify what the law means so that we can somehow feel good enough to be in the presence of Jesus. This is exactly not what we're called to be. Jesus himself must always come between the disciples and the law, not the law coming between Jesus and the disciples. We do not live by God's law to have a relationship with Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus to live by God's law. Now, I know that this is really sounds simple, but, or maybe it doesn't, but it, it, it is actually a fundamental part of what Jesus is teaching before we look at the rest of the chapter. It's so important to get this figured out. So let's move on, and we'll come back at the end to that. What was the failure of the scribes and Pharisees according to Jesus? Verse 19, Jesus puts his finger on the problem that God has with sinners, not just scribes and Pharisees, but us too. And he puts his finger on what the problem is with sinners and the law of God. And he says in verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes, that's the word, relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now that word relaxes Literally, it means relaxes. It means to loosen the belt. It means to untie what has been fastened down. It means to slacken off. 
God has a problem with anyone who takes his perfect law that he has given reflecting his perfect character and holiness, and God has a problem with anyone that, that takes that and then relaxes it, loosens it. Have you ever had such a big meal that you had to loosen your belt? Loosen your pants like last week at Thanksgiving? And then after that, you still had that extra piece of pumpkin pie? Put up your hand if you bought a pumpkin pie from Costco, by the way. I just, I'm really interested. Oh, man, I thought there'd be about 80%. I thought that if the Costco wanted to poison Winnipeg, they would do it through their pumpkin pies. <laughs> Everybody had one in their shopping cart. You see, this is the idea. Is you, you, you loosen the law. You relax what the law means. So there's more room to just live whatever you want to. In verse 20, Jesus calls out the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I want you to picture this. Jesus is up on a mountain overlooking the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowds had gone up to him, hundreds of people. Among the crowds are some of the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're sitting at the back of the crowd watching, seeing what Jesus is teaching. And he calls them out in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Never enter the kingdom of heaven. What problem did Jesus have with the scribes and Pharisees? It was that they had relaxed the intent of the law of God, and they had taught others to do the same. Now let me say this very clearly. You can fall off either side of the fence. You can fall off the side of the fence that is called legalism, which is basically thinking that you can please God through outward conformity to a bunch of man-made rules in your interpretation of the law. Or you can fall off the fence on the other side, which would be called libertinism, which doesn't live up to conformity to any kind of law because you think you're under grace. And of course... It's just another way of living selfishly and out of step with God's heart because God's heart is reflected in God's law. The criticism that Jesus had against the scribes and Pharisees was not that they were not good. They were good people, model citizens. The problem Jesus had with the scribes and Pharisees that was that they were not good enough. And that's the problem that a holy God has with every one of us. We're not good enough. And to think that we're good enough, we just relax the law of God so that we can feel okay about ourselves. We're going to see how Jesus defines that in a moment. And so frankly, the problem that he has, God has with all of us is that we must, we must not relax the law of God. And if we don't relax the law of God, then we have to come before him poor in spirit and recognize, I am destitute, and I need you, God. And I hunger, and I thirst for your righteousness. None of us can live in perfect obedience to God's law, but the solution is not in reinterpreting the law, not relaxing the law. That's not the solution. You, you can't just say, well, let's just move the goalposts. 
You imagine if every time a visiting team came to play the Jets, that the, the Jets opposing team had a net with goalposts twice as big, a net that was twice the size of the Jets goal. I think we'd be winning a lot of games. And that's what sometimes we have done with the law of God. We just relax it. And so, now, moving on, and you're going to just don't walk out when I say this. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter <laughs> because we go on to see that Jesus uses a formula, and he, he uses it six times. And the formula you might want to highlight in your journal, in your Bible, underline these words, because six times in the rest of chapter 5, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. That's the formula. Six times. Verse 21, he talks about anger. Verse 27, he talks about lust. Verse 20, 31, about divorce. 33, about lying. 38, about revenge. Verse 43, about hatred. I'll have lunch brought in. Don't worry. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we're going to really quickly go through these because Jesus has something. The thing is that this is not Jesus going deep into any one of these subjects. In fact, these are just a bypass subjects that Jesus is using as examples of how we've relaxed the law of God. And so we're going to go really quickly. And as we go through, I want you to keep in mind four things that would be very important to Jesus about how to rightly interpret the law of God. And you're going to see them as we go through them. Number one is that the intent or the spirit of the law is most important, not mere outward conformity. The transformation of the heart is what the law of God is after, not just behavior modification. Emphasis on the positive effect of the law is more important than the negative. And the law has, is not a, an, an end in itself, but it's a means to a greater end, which is to live a righteous, a truly righteous life in communion with God. And so let's take a really fast look at these six areas again. Now, first of all, verse 21, and uh, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, do not murder. Now that's the sixth commandment. And when the scribes and the Pharisees read Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth commandment, they would have reduced it simply to the idea of physically taking another person's life. And because most of them, I'm sure, had never physically murdered anyone, they had figured that they had fully completed the law of God and obeyed the law of God. But Jesus wanted to understand, them to understand that the heart of the law of God in the, in the command, do not murder, was much more than that. So in contrast with the relaxed interpretation of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus says, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He goes on to say that if you insult your brother and you say, you fool, the word is raka, means stupid head. But it has actually a moral kind of twist to it because it's kind of a scoundrel stupid head. And if you, if, you, if you even think that or say that, you're deserving of hell, Jesus says in this scripture. And you can substitute whatever word you want to have that's under your breath or out of your mouth when someone offends you deeply and you say something about them to them. 
You can substitute raka with whatever word you want. The point is that Jesus is teaching the spirit of the law. And though we may not be guilty of murder, Jesus is teaching that the intent of the law of Moses wasn't just to keep us from killing each other, but to keep us from having the kind of anger that would make us want to kill each other. And so the anger that broods and boils in our hearts and leaves relationships unreconciled is completely missing the mark of God. Even if you never lift a finger against that person, you're missing the mark of God. Jesus goes on to add about the fact that if you're at the altar offering a gift and you remember my brother has something against me, first and go and be reconciled. The idea is that behind this commandment of murder against murder is this idea of peaceful, harmonious, reconciled relationship. That's the heart of God. Jesus goes on in verse 27 to talk about lust. He says, you have heard that it was said, there's the formula, You shall not commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment, Exodus 20.14. The scribes and Pharisees would have absolutely said, saw that verse, read it, thought, I've never committed adultery, and they would have thought, I've obeyed the law. And yet, Jesus says, because he's after the heart of it, I say unto you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust, lustful intent, there's that word intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word used for look here in verse 28, a Greek word that has to do with a, not just a passing glance, but a continuous looking. We could translate it a second look or an, a, a longer look. I think you know the difference between looking and lusting. I don't need to explain it likely. A cute girl or guy catches your attention And something happens. The fire of sexual desire is lit. And it makes you want to look again. And if you're not careful, you'll start to imagine. And you'll start to fantasize. But remember, your eyes are not leading your heart to lust. Your heart is leading your eyes to lust. And so Jesus, in in no other passage does he speak with such hyperbole as this when he says with an exaggerated form of expression, he says, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to chop it off. I knew a man in Thunder Bay who literally jumped ahead of a train and chopped off his right hand because he took this verse literally. Jesus is not asking for mutilation of the body. He is using an exaggerated form of warning about the gravity of sin. He's not asking for mutilation of the body. He's asking for mortification of the flesh, the sinful part of you. And so what he's really saying here is he's saying, if, if if your eyes cause you to sin, imagine, pretend that you don't have eyes, that you can't even look at that, or your hand, etc., So it's a figurative interpretation. But you see the intent of the law here, don't you? That the intent of the law leaves leaves no room for self-righteousness. By this understanding, we're all murderers. We're all adulterers. By this understanding of the way that Jesus sees it. Let's move on to talk about divorce. Of course, after talking about lust, that's a natural next subject for Jesus to use as an example. 
Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give a certificate of divorce. There was a rabbinical school that the scribes and Pharisees followed called the school of Hillel. Josephus, the historian, talks about this. And the, the, the scribes and Pharisees followed that model of thinking that a man, a Jewish man, could give his wife a, a certificate of divorce for almost any reason he deemed necessary. And so, so no-fault divorce was around long before 1970. And this grieved the heart of God. The Pharisees were preoccupied with what was legally grounds for divorce. What was Jesus preoccupied with? Jesus was preoccupied with the very intent of why a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus was preoccupied about the intent of marriage. And in fact, the law of God never commanded divorce, of course, but rather it was a concession because God knew that the hearts of many humans could become hard in marriage. And then, even then, it's on the grounds only of sexual infidelity. And so Jesus is teaching here the intent of the Word of God in marriage is oneness. People join together a marriage union that reflects God and His people, Christ and the church. We live in a fallen world, though, and we have broken people that make broken relationships and concessions are made, God says. Now, I want you to know on this matter, I do not make light for a moment of the pain of a fractured marriage or the long, sleepless nights of prayer and deliberation before God on what to do next when you're in that kind of condition in a marriage. I do not make light of that. I am not going to sit and judge over anyone on that. I'm just merely pointing out that Jesus' intent here is to contrast the lackadaisical view of marriage that had religious leaders perverting the law of God. And frankly, it was a divorce that did not care for women in that society one iota. And so Jesus was trying to point out the inequity. He goes on to the subject of lying in verse 33. Not surprisingly, some of the same rabbis that would relax divorce laws would also relax laws on taking vows and making oaths. And so in verse 33, you have heard it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but perform to the Lord what has been sworn. But I say to you, Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. Don't swear on the Bible. Don't swear on your mother's grave. Don't say, God strike me with lightning if it's not true. Don't swear on oath at all, but simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. Done. Makes common sense that we should not have need for vows and oaths. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I, when I hear people say today, honest truth, it's the honest truth. So what have you been telling me up till now? You know, it's the honest truth. I swear to tell you the truth. Or, let me be honest with you. Or, no word of a lie. I mean, when people say such things, it goes like, what's wrong with just saying what you mean and meaning what you say? How about let me do it that way and save a lot of other words? 
That's what Jesus is saying. No relaxing of the law here. Let your word be having integrity. That's all. That's what Jesus is teaching. And then he goes on to the subject of revenge. And here in this subject, verse 38, he says, You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek also. If anyone takes your tunic, give him your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go two. Whoa, this is radical obedience beyond what you'd think the law would say. In these verses, we see the scribes and the Pharisees actually mishandling the Word of God in a gross way. Because you see, the law of Moses allowed for a tribunal, a council to gather to determine just exactly what injustice had been done to someone. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Full recompense was needed. But instead, the scribes and the Pharisees were taking this as though you as an individual could take personal retribution against someone instead of waiting for the council. You take the law into your own hands, you get your own pound of flesh. You don't wait for anybody else to tell you. Someone said that if we lived by this, we'd have a bunch of toothless, blind people in society. But of course, that was never the intent of the law, the heart of God is not retribution. In fact, in Romans 12, it says, leave room for my wrath, I'll repay. So Jesus radically reinterprets the law for those listening, and he gives them a radical readiness to forgive and love, regardless of what wrong was done against you. And then finally, the the subject of hatred in verse 43, where again, the misapplied verses Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now the amazing thing about this is that there is nowhere in the law of God in the Bible that says hate your enemies. It's not here. God never said hate your enemies. God's heart is not hatred toward his enemies. The interesting thing is that Leviticus 19, verse 17 says the exact opposite. It says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin. And then it ends by saying, for you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. So how was it that the rabbis could get around this? Well, what they did was, in teaching the exact reverse of this, They conveniently interpreted neighbor and brother as a fellow Jew that was from the same group as you. And therefore, they could say that anybody's outside of that fold, it's okay to hate them. And Jesus comes and says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and then you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. And he ends by saying, therefore, be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? How did that start? A lawyer came up to Jesus and said, who's my neighbor? Where does my love need to go? Where's the boundary of my love? Who's my neighbor? And so what does Jesus do? He, he talks about the Good Samaritan, the one outside of the Jewish fold. Jesus uses the logic in verse 46. If you love those who love you, how different are you than anybody else? 
Like, how, does, how do you stand out, Christian, if you just love those who love you and give to those who give to you and invite people over who invite you over and, and so on and so forth? No. So remember again, what is this point? The six examples that we've just sped through? The six examples reveal that the intent or the spirit of the law is what matters, not this outward obedience to some moral code that you've made up. The transformation of the heart is what matters, not just a modified behavior to look Christian. An emphasis on the positive goal of the heart of God when he gave us his law, not just the negatives of what not to do. And then this law is a means to a much greater end, which is a people that because they are living in communion with God, are also living in conformity to the spirit of the law of God. Boy, we have a long way to go. And that's why, again, I go back to this. Don't ever let the law of God become, come between you and Jesus. You'll never get to Jesus because you'll never completely fulfill the intent of the law of God. You need Jesus. That's why Bonhoeffer said, there is no obedience without communion with Jesus. You, you don't even understand how far you fall short of the law of God, the heart of God, the spirit of God, and the intent of the law. You need Jesus. And that's why we want to remember him. Amen. May God bless you. Lord God, sometimes we think so small. Sometimes we look at the things that you tell us in Scripture just as things to, to check off, just things to do in order to, to honor you. And we do want to honor you. We do want to live a life that is righteous and in communion with you like we just heard. But we reduce it while all the while you've been meaning to expand it, to say that you want to change our hearts. You want to grow us on the inside so that we can, because of our relationship with you, because of the joy of knowing you, live a life that is righteous and, and live the satisfaction of being an honor to you in how we live. I thank you for the truth that you've told us today. I thank you for your spirit that you've given us who is changing us. And just keep our hearts soft to you, Lord, that we might long for the glory to be yours. Bless each one as we go from here, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.